On June 27th, economist and professor Steve Horowitz passed away at the age of 57. Steve was a friend of the Institute for Liberal Studies and Freedom, and he left us much too soon. In his memory, we're going to share his last interview with us, in which we talked about what drives progress. This was a topic near and dear to Steve's heart, and we think it shows just one reason he had such an effect on us and why he will be missed by so many. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Steve Horowitz. Steve is Distinguished Professor of Free Enterprise and Director of the Institute for Study of Political Economy in the Department of Economics in the Miller College of Business at Ball State. He is an affiliated senior scholar at the Mercatus Center, a senior fellow at the Fraser Institute of Canada, and the economics editor at the Cato Institute's libertarianism.org. He's the author of four books, including most recently Austrian Economics, an introduction. He has written extensively on Hayek and Austrian economics, monetary theory and history, and American economic history. He's also a frequent guest on radio and cable TV programs. In 2020, he received the Julian L. Simon Memorial Award from the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Steve, welcome to The Curious Task. Well, thank you, Alex. Good to be here. Good to be back. Yes, great to have you back on. So, Steve, the question for our episode today is, what drives progress? Of course, that's a big topic. So I'm going to pick just a couple places to start us off, and, and we can go from there. But first, you say, and you've written, that you don't like to use the term economic growth, and you'd rather be very specific and say economic progress. Why is that? Well, I think a couple reasons. I think growth doesn't capture the idea that when economies grow, uh, at least good growth anyway, uh, that they make people better off. It sounds like often when we say economic growth, there's this thing out there called the economy that that we're looking at and we just want it to grow uh, right. and we'll watch it get bigger and that will be exciting. Uh, and and But that misses why what we think of as economic growth uh, matters which is at least good economic growth. And I want to come back to that good, bad distinction in just a minute. Um, but what we really care about is progress. What we care about is making people better off. We care about uh, you know, more people living longer, better lives. We care about uh, uh, the things that are important to us getting easier to afford so that more people can have them. Those, those are the things we care about, right? That's, that's progress. I, I mean, there's a nice illustration of this in front of us as, you know, right now we're recording in, in December, which is people have been really concerned during the pandemic. The, the criticism has been, oh, well, you, you people who don't want lockdowns, right, or whatever, you, you think economic growth is more important than saving lives, or the economy is more important than saving lives. Well, right. no, that's not what anyone's saying. And I think embedded in that is this notion that the economy is this thing out there that has its own logic and growth. It's like a plant that we watch it grow, and, and et cetera, et cetera. No, what we care about is, are we continuing to generate progress? And here we are with the first rounds of vaccines being administered in the U.S. and parts of Europe. That's progress, right? That's what we're talking about. That's, you know, what we care about is, is are we getting more vaccines and are we pushing back disease? Those are, those are really the things that we care about. And so I think it's, I think part of it is economists are frequently guilty here. And, and I think, Classical liberals are guilty of, of that language of economic growth and not emphasizing enough that what we really mean is progress. And so let me go back to a distinction, too, which is I think that, that 
one of the things that happened in the 19 sort of 40s and 50s and even into the 60s was people looked at the former Soviet Union and looked at sort of GDP growth rates and said, well, they're doing fine, right? I mean, this is the famous thing with, you know, in, in Paul Samuelson's book that eventually they'd over, the curve would overtake us, right? And listen, because people were looking at economic growth, they were looking at stuff. They were looking at these measures, you know, GDP as a kind of measure of stuff that we produce. And, and if that's what we mean by economic growth, that's not really telling us much. What we care about is, is this actually improving people's lives? Is it helping us in, 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 is, is their progress. So I think when we, when we refer to economic growth without you know, explaining it or just leaving it that way, it's easy to be misunderstood by critics uh, who will say, oh, you just care about this thing called the economy. No, actually, we care about the people and we care about the fact that, that you know, enabling people to engage in economic activity generates progress and makes people's lives better off. That's what we care about. And I think also it, the, the growth pro- using the phrase growth, economic growth, makes it hard sometimes to distinguish between the good kind of growth and the just making stuff kind of growth, which isn't necessarily, uh, doesn't necessarily make people's lives better off. Yeah, no, I think actually the Soviet example is is really great because as we know, people people enjoy a a good Soviet joke, right? Especially with all the command economy (laughs) stuff, but it's not like they were, they were, they were dummies. They had a lot of smart mathematicians, people working on this stuff. And as you said, if we just think of the whole making stuff paradigm, there was a good chunk of time there where they were doing exactly that. But whether that was progress, of course, that's a whole different discussion. Right. And, and it goes to one my favorite Soviet, it's not, I mean, it's funny, it's also true, right? That, that, you know, uh, they were so enamored with stuff that they measured or, or were, you know, told producers to measure growth by the sort of volume and weight of stuff they produce. So, you know, right. make, make 10,000 pounds worth of nails and you get 10, 1000 pound nails. Right. I mean, that's not doing anybody any good. And you don't, we don't care about 10,000 pounds of nails. What we care about are what we need certain amount of, you know, these kind of nails and this kind of nail for this sort of purpose. So that's, it's not just about the sort of physical measures of growth in this physicalist way, but about whether what we're producing is making people's lives better off. And in the same vein here, I have a quote from you. You say, economic progress and human progress more generally is not a matter of making more stuff, as you were saying. It's a matter of yeah. finding better ways to arrange the stuff yes. we do have so as to create more and more value. So take us through that. I know there's, yeah. there's a lot packed in there. Let's break it down. There is. Uh, so that's another way to look at this same, uh, this, this same set of issues, which is, you know, at some level, economic activity doesn't create anything. The number of atoms in the universe is still the number of atoms in the universe. And and when we engage in economic activity, we're simply rearranging the physical world in ways that that create objects uh, or, or enable us to trade things, right, that make us better off. So if I turn wood and and nails uh into a ladder okay uh that's you know there's still wood and na- wood and nails are still the same number of atoms in the universe but the ladder has much more valuable value to me or to someone else perhaps than it does than a pile of nails and wood and a hammer right lying around <clears throat> so in that sense production right just rearranges things in ways that are more valuable but so does trade and that's the one that often gets missed right when we when we trade if i decide if i build that ladder and i sell it for twenty dollars and someone gives me a twenty dollar bill and i give them the ladder right that exchange there's not even in some sense 
production or transformation of the physical world there there's just a change in in the in fact just a change in the rights it, you don't even have to physically move the objects right when if we agree to that purchase now the latter is yours and the 20 dollar bill is mine so that trading of the rights to those two pieces of stuff right make but makes us better off at least we both believe we'll be better off by engaging in that that exchange so there's another case where we create value without creating in some, you know, more stuff. Trade is the obvious one because there's, there's literally no more stuff. We just trade. But even when we create a new object out of old in out of other inputs, at at the physical level, we're just transforming one set of molecules and atoms into another, right? But in ways that make them more valuable. And so I think that you know, when you when you start to see economic activity that way, suddenly it looks really different and kind of cool, which is which is we are what humans do is transform the physical world in ways that make that make a new arrangement of matter be more valuable. And the more we do that, the more we get progress and so on. I think one little side point there too, of course, is that uh this is a point that that uh, in the last twenty years, some people, a number of people have made. Even Al Gore, I think, has made this point, which is how surprising. Which is GDP weighs less than it used to. Hmm. Yeah. Right. Which is you know we don't we don't we're we're doing more services, we're doing more trade, we're doing right. We don't per, we don't do physical stuff like we used to so as as much as we used to. And and again, some of the critics oh the critics will say death of manufacturing and all this. Well, wait a second, right? We still manufacture. A lot of stuff like we used to it's just a smaller percentage of the of overall output and we use fewer humans for it right we're just with the manufacturing jobs the fact that there's fewer manufacturing jobs doesn't mean we're not manufacturing things it means we're really good at it we don't need as many people same with i mean you can think about agriculture right it's not like anyone said if you sort of imagine going back 75 or 100 years and someone saying oh american agriculture is dead look look how many fewer agriculture jobs there used to be and you go well, no, actually, we've never produced more food. We're just so good at it. We don't need all the people to do it anymore. We, we can free those people up to do other things like manufacture stuff. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. So I, so I think that's another part of this whole way of, 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 of thinking, right? Which is one, one way to think about progress is, is that uh, progress, progress means the things that we value don't weigh as much. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Yeah, and actually, you know, that I have a very interesting note I want to get back to later. So I'm going to park that last part of what you're saying there till later because I have I want to elaborate a bit on that. But but back to the first part of what you're saying too. I had it noted, and I'm glad you touched on it. That this sort of conversation about the the quote unquote middlemen, right? And you've written about this too. Yeah. And uh, you know, I've been reading uh, a lot of like some um, if you will like left libertarian liber literature, some Marxist stuff recently. Good stuff in there for other reasons. But but and I also read Virginia Postrel's book recently about you know uh, thread and and textile. And oh, things it's like that. It's tremendous. Funny. Exactly. Yeah. And throughout history, uh, you know, from the 1500s to 1600s, so the amount of people that uh, weren't, weren't economists, weren't, weren't of Adam Smith's cloth, if you will, pardon the pun. Not, so uh, people in different industries are observing things in different ways. They really had it out for these middlemen, right? What value could they possibly be creating? And even today, I think to your point, uh, when the idea that, you know, there's this economy out there, I think people still think of it like that. Some people do at least, you know, oh, there's there's steel being created. You know, we got to keep that supply chain moving. We, go, we got to, the food gets to the store. But then people still sometimes think of like, you know, what? What are these middlemen doing? But in fact, as you're saying, a lot. Right. And they're, they're you know, it's getting stuff from point A to point B is, is one thing. But, right. But also, you know, supplying the other pieces, the complementary pieces that are necessary to 
to to to move things along. And then, and I think Virginia's book is really interesting, as you say, because she has a couple of discussions about how uh, these, you know, in a time when when we didn't have transportation and communication like we do today, you hired someone to be your representative in the city to sort of do your bidding for you. I mean, there's all what economists would call there's some interesting principal agent problems there, but but it's actually more obvious to me in those situations, the value that those folks are adding. Yeah. You, you, you know, you, you can't be there and you, you hire this guy who, who sort of tracks the market and, and, and plays this intermediary role and make sure that, that you're sending the right things to the city and all that. And, and that's, that's contributing value. You're not going to sell your stuff, your fabric, whatever, without that person being there to do, to do that work. So, so, you know, we, today we think about wholesalers and retailers and so on, right? I mean, we're, you know, if you manufacture, take, take something like a, maybe like a small, you know, artisanal, butcher or something, right? Or Mm -hmm. a a cow, a rancher, right? Who, you know, who organic, you know, organic free range beef or something. Who's going to buy, how do I know who's going to buy this? Right. I, I don't have the ability to knock on every door of every, you know, high end grocery store. So I need a middle person. I need an intermediary, right. Who knows that end of the market and can connect me with that person. And that's incredibly valuable. They don't produce anything physical perhaps, but in their ability to connect buyers and sellers, they, they, well, they reduce transaction costs. And, and uh, one way, maybe this is in your notes, maybe it's not, but if it's not good, um, <laughs> cause I don't know if I've ever said this in like a, like an article, I say it other places all the time, but, but the advance of human progress is the progressive reduction of transaction costs, right? I mean, that's, that's one way to think about it is, is that, that we're, we find better, we, we find lower and lower cost ways to trade and produce. And as we reduce those transaction costs, we, we make more trades, we produce more stuff and we get more progress. So I think, you know, that's a, the best argument for me about middlemen is that they are uh, among the great transaction cost reducers. And that's, that's part of how progress happens. Yeah, absolutely. And even if you didn't use that exact term, one of your articles, we know that Mike Munger goes around screaming that yes. at people that he's got that uh, angle covered to some degree. Uh, I hate giving him credit for anything, but oh, oh, fair you're, enough. Prob- you're probably right. Though. <laughs> yeah, fair. We'll move ahead then. Just to get- <laughs> <laughs> um, another thing you said is you said human minds do not automatically create pro- human progress. Those minds require the freedom and feedback associated with institutions of liberalism. Then you go on to list markets, the rule of law, peaceful transfers of power, and a couple other things. I'd actually like to to break a few of those out. Uh, you know, some are very relevant today, and others are just always relevant. So uh, when we talk about uh, you know freedom and feedback, let's talk about markets from that angle. What, what what do markets give us from those from those two points of view? Well, okay, so so you need two things. You need for progress to happen. Uh, people need to be able to engage in what what uh, Adam Theriere and others now call a permissionless innovation, and I and uh, I love that term. I would say invention. I have an invention innovation distinction that we can play with maybe later, but but let's you know permissionless innovation. And and Deidre McCloskey talks about this too, right? The idea that you need to be able to try new things without asking permission. That's crucial. Okay. Mm-hmm. And Jidra, you know, I can hear her in my brain saying, well, it's not just about not asking permission. It's also about, you know, the sort of ethical approval of that activity. And she's quite right. So, so you need permissionless innovation. You need the, the ability and the, and the, the sort of 
moral approval or at least moral toleration of 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 being able to to innovate without permission so that's the freedom piece right the feedback piece is okay so i can invent all kinds of stuff you know broccoli flavored ice cream sounds pretty good maybe but how do i know it's the right stuff how do i know and this is the invention innovation thing how i like to think about it how do i know that my invention's actually an innovation how do i know that my invention will actually again be a source of progress will really matter uh you know you can you know the, the back to the soviets they they invented their own cars but right not you know not really innovations uh so how do you know right and that's the question how do you know and there's the feedback point and so that's why we need the prices and profits of the marketplace prices profits losses and all those those things provide us both the signal the knowledge we need and the incentive we need to to both figure out what to do and then to know whether we've done it correctly and so when we think about everything that 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 producers do from from looking at the market to imagine what imagining what opportunities might be there to formulating a budget and formulating a production plan to then executing it and then seeing what their profits and losses look like all of those things involve using market prices using uh, using those things to 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 inform and incentivize their their behavior in ways that they hopefully get it right that's, and or better yet, if they get it wrong, they know they got it wrong and they get some kind of indication about how they might improve it. So, so I think the, the, the freedom and feedback point is that you need both of those. And, and I think it's worth remembering that you need both. You, you know, it's, uh, we, we, we emphasize sometimes the freedom part and say, oh, well, right. we, you know, we don't want to, we don't want to overly regulate entrepreneurs and et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Yes, that's true. We want to let, we want to let Uber be Uber, right? We want to let them do their thing, but, but how do we know it's the right thing to do? And that's, that's the really important point about markets. And the one, I think, frankly, that is overlooked by the critics of markets, by, by, uh, by sort of serious socialists who, who don't recognize how difficult that knowledge problem is, both in terms of figuring out what it is that people want, but more important, figuring out how best to produce the things that people want. That's the, it's the question of which inputs to use to make the outputs. That's the harder question. And the one that I think is, is often overlooked by critics. Right. And, and on the flip side too, like if we're again, hanging everything that we're discussing today on that progress element, you could have a business, let's say that goes, does some rent seeking, gets itself an injunction against other businesses not yep. to come into the market. Can they conduct business? Do, do they specifically have the freedom at that point to go and make a bunch of money? Sure. But if we remove that feedback mechanism, are we going to get better cars if everyone else is tariffed out of the market. That's right. No, that's exactly right. And 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 that's why, you know, uh that that free so this, I mean, we 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 can go back to your sort of list of 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 institutions there, but this is why things like like the rule of law and equality before the law are so important. Right. Uh and and sort of uh you know recognizing that the, the problem with the rent seeking society is that it's a society in which not everyone are is equal. Um I, I and again, this may be on on your your list of things to talk about, but we'll I'll head there anyway. You know, I wrote a piece recently for libertarianism.org about privilege, and I think about how we need to liberals need to recapture that notion of privilege. Uh, if we go back to Adam Smith and and Mill and others, right? The the original classical liberals 
privilege was the problem, or at least monopoly privilege, right? The unearned privileges were, were, were the problem. And so when we think about your rent-seeking example, right, that's the problem, which is some folks have a privilege, that privilege undermines the permissionless innovation, the freedom part, right? Right. Uh, of 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 the freedom and feedback, it also distorts the feedback too, right? Because their their own pro- their profit signals are now not about creating value to consumers, but about how, whether they pleased politicians. So so the, you know it, it's undermining those processes that link together economic activity with progress. And so again, in a, in a heavily rent seeking society, right, where we have privileged producers, they're you know whether it's tariffs or what, they're still. Du- they're making stuff, right? Right, but we're not getting the progress we would get otherwise, right? Because because the resources are being diverted into into both the act of rent seeking, but also overly devoted to the things that are now protected by that successful rent seeking in ways that 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 undermine what I would think of as true progress. And and another one that I, I really want to get your thoughts on today, p- perhaps timely based on the political environment in the United States now, but but you mentioned in uh, in some of your writings that, and it might sound a little left field to a couple people based on this conversation, but I, I'm really interested to hear your thoughts. The peaceful transference of power, you, you put this in, in some of your writing for for reasons I'm assuming are, are obvious, but from both specific cases and, and general. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, this is a, you know, this is an old Mises point, right? Uh, Mises, uh, well, let's, let me sort of back up one step, right? I think the the relationship of of modern libertarians, I want to use that word specifically, modern libertarians with democracy is a tricky one, right? Um, yep. That, that you know, uh, there are free, just, I mean, your rent-seeking example that you just gave is a good kind of thing, right? Where libertarians say, well, you see what democracy gets you, right? When you, when you, when you have certainly weekly con- weekly constrained legislatures uh you're going to get rent seeking and all the other problems and and that's that's democracy's democracy's bad okay yeah i mean i think you know un- unconstrained democracy is bad but a constrained democracy and here we you know a constitutionally constrained democracy is a good thing, I think, and I think uh, we need to remember that we need to. So, and it's a Mises point, as I said before. I mean, Mises talks about the ways in which the advantage of democracy is that it provides the peaceful transition of power, right? And 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 that's important because one of the things that that we need for economic progress is we need we need the predictability and the stability of of, of institutions, right? If if we live in a society in which we can't be sure that that power will get transferred peacefully that creates significant uncertainty what bob higgs would call regime uncertainty um, and that makes it much harder for people to sort of say well I, you know i don't know what's going to happen every time we have an election or every time you know this happens i don't know if we're going to have a peaceful transference of power why would i want to invest my resources for the long run if you know, things could blow up every time, right? I mean, you can see business people saying, mm, I'm not doing anything until I know the results of this right. election, until I'm sure there's been a peaceful transference of power. So I think that's that's important, right? And I think we 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 take it for granted, those of us living in liberal democracies, that that's how it works. I think it's important for libertarians who are, you know, democracy skeptics for understandable reasons need to also recognize that even, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to question Mises's classical liberal bona fides, right? I mean, he's, he's the real deal, but he understood that, that democracy is, is how you peacefully transfer power. And that's, that's important. 
for sure. And and I think we have one more one more that we can get in before the break here. And just to continue in the vein of the some of the classics and the bona fides. And again, some people that are very familiar with this topic will be well, well yeah, of course. But I, I think it's time to get a little bit wonky about it because it's still a fun one. So you mentioned in this list that you gave, one of the other ones was 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 sound money as one of the liberal institutions necessary to to create this framework for human uh, uh, progress. I'm being careful not to say growth. Yeah. <laughs> so so uh, so so what what are your thoughts on that? Take us through that. Yeah, well, again, I uh, I like using sound money, not stable money, right? And I think because there's that's a that's a whole different discussion. That's a kind of technical issue I, for me in monetary theory. But sound, for me, what sound money means that 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 the value of money uh, doesn't it doesn't have to be stable, but it needs to move in sort of predictable ways. It needs to and and that money needs to be reliable, uh, which means that. We avoid both inflation and deflation. And I think the reason why that's so important is, uh, and, and it tends to be inflation more than deflation, but but so that what inflation does when we don't have sound money is it disrupts the role that prices play that we were discussing earlier in making possible that feedback for people to know whether they've done the right things or not. And when, when, in, when you have inflation, even relatively low rates of inflation, when you have inflation, uh, prices, profits, losses uh, become much noisier signals, and it becomes harder for entrepreneurs to sort of read market the marketplace and figure out what to do. Are they seeing prices move because people really want different things, or is it because of the effects of inflation? Hard to know. The burden on them of, of, of sort of having to figure that out is greater. They're more likely to make mistakes. We're more likely to get inefficiency. And I also think that we're more in that world, especially with the inflation is significant and really makes markets less reliable, people are on the margin going to turn to rent seeking. They're going to turn to the political process to, to allocate resources and to achieve their, their attempts at increasing their wealth if you can't do it in the marketplace. And so, so for me, that's the key. Sound money is important because it's a framework institution for ensuring that that, that, that feedback process of the marketplace uh, is, is reliable and, and enables us to, to generate that progress. And I actually think that's an excellent place to take our break. So we're going to do so right now. Everyone, you're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Steve Horwitz today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send us questions and feedback to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Lawrence Kong, Liam O'Brien, and Peter Jaworski. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Steve Horowitz today. So, Steve, first half of our conversation was great. I think we talked about the difference between uh, what some people talk about as economic growth, and we talked about your ideas on what progress is. We talked about what, how progress happens, how it's important, uh, some aspects of the framework that help human progress move forward. And I just want to say at the top of this part, uh, the top of this half hour, uh, before we get into a couple more specific questions about stats and things like that, and a, a bit of specifically American discussion too, 
I guess we've been faring quite well, it seems, as far as progress has been going over the past hundred years or so in general, right? I mean, of course, there's ups, there's downs, there's there's global pandemics, but we're better off than we were a hundred years ago, aren't we? We, uh, yes, <laughs> Un- unambiguously so. Uh, you know, at least again, I always kind of couch and say, certainly in material terms, we're 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 better off. I mean, it's you know, are people questions like are people happier and and so on? We can, you know, that's a really fascinating question. I actually think we are happier than than we used to be. And the easy way to do that is to ask yourself the following question. If I took you back 100 years, how happy would you be? If I went back 100 years and took someone forward 100 years and put them here, how happy would they be? I'm right. telling you, they'd be a lot happier here than you'd be there. And that, that's what that's all you really need to know, right, about about whether, we, whether we're really happier. Now, this how, we, we just don't feel it because because we always, we get, you know, we, we get used to, we get anchored into whatever it is we're doing. But yeah, we're better off. I mean, you know, almost and almost any measure you can talk about from things like the, the, the role of women in society and the, and, and the ways in which society has opened up to, to people of color and, and, and so on uh, to medical advancement. I mean, I'm a, you know, I'm a living science experiment these days. I'd, I'd be dead. 20 years ago, maybe 10, uh, I'd be dead right now. Uh, and, uh, so medical advances. And again, we're, we're, you know, we've talked about the virus vaccine and all that. So that kind of stuff, but it's also the case that things have never been cheaper. I mean, uh, the ability for the average and, and for poor people to afford clothing and food and so on, just as one, I know we'll talk about some stats, but I'll just throw the general one out here. Um, it's a, I should know, by the way, I'm going to, we'll talk about a lot of us, numbers. Everything I know about the Canadian numbers is that they're very, very similar. So, so we can, you know, uh, they're, they're not, you know, nothing's identical, but, but similar. So just one quick number is that roughly a hundred years ago, uh, the average American household spent about three quarters of its income on food, clothing, and shelter. And today it's about half that it's about 35 percent. So, so that right there, right, you know, tells us something uh, uh, in, in real terms, food and clothing have never been cheaper. People go, well, shelter, really? Well, yeah, actually, you know, as a percentage of income, yeah. And, and this is how we can afford all the other stuff we have, right? That we're not, we're not spending the bulk of our income on, on those, what we, you know, we think of as necessities. And, and just to throw another one on, on that sort of same note there that, and this is very interesting too, because I think people uh, think a lot about um, sometimes let's let's just say let's just say for the sake of it now like wealth accumulation how much income someone has how much is in their bank account but you talked in, in several articles and also some of your blogging about about consumption that this is an interesting thing to look at so well, right. why is that interesting to look at as compared to the other things I just rhymed off well so I because that's what matters right I mean at the end of the day what we care about is what kinds of things are people able to have in their households, in their medicine chest, in their refrigerator, right? Uh, and, and it's not, and sometimes people say, well, Horowitz, you're, you know, it's just, you're talking about toys and you're talking about, you know, big colored LCD TVs The, the iPhone 37 or whatever. Right, yeah. exactly. But yes, but those things matter, mm-hmm. right? I mean, having a good cell phone matters for lots of reasons. With a cell phone, you can be homeless and still get a job, get a call for a job. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. I mean, for example. But I'm also thinking about things like air conditioning, right? I mean, and 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 having, you know, a, a reliable freezer in your house 
uh, and all those kind of things, which which were not the case for average and certainly for poor families a gen, couple generations ago. So the ability, you know, we it's weird now to build a house without air conditioning, even in Ottawa or, you know, where I used to be in Northern New York, uh, you just do, right? You just do, because it's so cheap. Uh, so so those sorts of things, you know, matter too. Uh, and, and of course, the classic example is the washing machine, right? I mean, we, you know, 100, 120 years ago, we didn't have the washing machine as we know it now. And doing the wash was a, was a, multiple person and i say person i mean women activity uh and took an enormous amount of time and brute physical effort and and it meant that that girls would miss time at school because they had to help out with the laundry the invention of the washing machine uh i like to ask my students do you think what was more important for the long run uh progress of women the invention of the washing machine or getting the vote right and that that leads to an interesting discussion i'm sure yeah yeah, and Hans Rosling's "May He Rest in Peace," a great washing machine TED Talk is is still the, you know that that's pro- that's progress. That you want to understand what progress is, that's progress right there. That the, what's depicted in that in that talk uh, and, and the transformative role of the washing machine, and so so those sorts of things, right? Though that's if we want to talk about you know progress, it's not just material. And what's great about I mean. What's great about our giveaway, the punchline to the Rosling thing, if anyone hasn't seen it, but but what's great about that video is he points out, he 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 you know shows about how the how the washing machine when his when they got their first one, how excited his his grandmother was and his mother was to have a washing machine and and he and he loads the stuff into the washing machine and then at the end he opens it and instead of pulling the clothes out of the washing machine, he pulls out books and he says, the washing machine gave us time to read, gave my mother time to learn English. And she read to us and well, you know, right. Yes. That's one, that's economic progress <laughs> Two, uh, that's, that's, non-material project progress, right? Right. That's we, we, we only care about the material stuff because it enables us to read, to have the time to read and to, and for children to have the time to read and those sorts of things. So, so, you know, we, we, uh, what I love about that, video among many things is that it gives us a language us meaning us cold-hearted economists a language to talk about and a visual to say this is this is what gdp is or should be right we don't care about stuff we care about the fact that stuff makes it possible for us to live better lives yeah and on that exact note one of the things i like that you mentioned quite often in your writing and some of your lectures too is just to you know the, the thought experiment you can add to everything you're just saying is like how many hours it would take to get such and such type of good and i've there's a bunch of that in your articles and i really like that i think one you said is uh um you took the prevailing wage at the time or the average hourly wage at the time and you said well you'd have to work so many i forget how it was so many hours to get like a tv set or whatever it was at the time right. in the 70s and it was 369 dollars or something like that and you said and you said, now with the same amount of work and so many hours, you can go into Walmart, get yourself an iPhone, get yourself a surround system. And, right. and we have to think of the right. quality of the TV in question here, too, of course. Right. So. Right. Right. And so, yeah, that's, uh, you know, you can you can for the same number of hours, you can buy about four thousand dollars worth of electronics. Now. Right. That's what it was and about. and that's like you said, that's everything. 3D printer. Right. What you know, you, you name it. And so we're yeah, we're <laughs> we're we're fabulously in those ways more wealthy. Um but I think it's important to not lose the, the you know, that, that that also means that food is much cheaper than it used to be. I think another measure of progress uh, is variety. That, that we, we uh, you know, I said this on Twitter recently and lefties, you know, sort of made 
a little fun of it, but I don't think it's, I think they're wrong. I, I'm old enough to remember what the potato chip section of the grocery store looked like in the 1970s. You had, you know, plain barbecued, ruffled, and then can of Pringles and, you know, maybe one or two others, right? Maybe, maybe Doritos. Um, You've been to the grocery store recently? It's a whole freaking aisle. It's a section unto itself, yeah. Right, right, exactly. And and if you don't want to, and they're like, oh, well, you know, that's capitalism. No, but but think about anywhere in the grocery store in terms of the variety of stuff. Go go into produce, right? I, I never saw I never saw an avocado as a kid or a kiwi or a star fruit or any of this. I mean, I lived in, in a town of 7,000 for a long time in, in rural New York. And we had kiwis and star fruits and, and and all this stuff, and so that you know the the variety of things that are available to us and our ability to customize. This was you know when Dell computers first started letting you sort of build your own computer, and 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 there was a this talk of this idea of mass customization, which I love, right? And and now we just we kind of take that for granted. Now that's just you just buy stuff and you get it the way you want it, and it didn't used to be like that, right? So so the 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 option and the variety that we have available to us is, is incredible. Uh, and, and the advantage of that is, is that it lets us more precisely match our preferences with the things that we purchase. And that's a, we are better off for that. That's progress. We're, we're you know, you don't say we're happier. Economists would say just, you know, that enables us to satisfy wants more precisely might be the best way to put it. But, but it's, yeah, we're happier. I actually get the blue cheese that I like, not the one I don't like. Right. I mean, so that's, right. that's, I don't have to settle. Right. And that's, that's really good. Um, so that's that variety. So variety, I think is an under appreciated piece of, of, of how we might indicate measured progress. And when, when people talk about like, you know, progress overall, and of course, cause you mentioned this earlier in our chat too, that we're, we're certainly not sitting here being flippant about issues of inequality. You know, they exist, right. they're important to talk about for a variety of reasons, et cetera. But do you think one of the bigger problems of when people talk about this kind of stuff, or if someone's going to object to you, let's say, or anything you're saying here, that there's a bit of a cross purposes thing going on here. That is to say that sometimes we get confused between, you know, relative inequality and absolute poverty. That is to say, yeah. if the, if the poor are truly getting poor let's just say they are for a second what does that actually mean in today's societies i think just as interesting question as what the gap is yeah i do so a couple of things right i mean i think we uh i'm interested in that in the absolute question right uh and i think so a couple of things i think oftentimes people who are critical of what they say is a growth and in inequality I think you have to ask them some questions. I think you have to, uh, first of all, say, are you really talking about inequality or are you talking about poverty? What's really bothering right, right. you? Would, it, would, would greater, in, I mean, I, I'm going to do the visual, the audience won't be able to see it, but, but would, would greater inequality bother you if, the, if that greater inequality was everybody getting really richer, right? But just the rich got super, super richer, right? Is it, is it really the gap between the poor and the rich that troubles you? Or is it where the poor sit in absolute terms? And that's, so that's one question. And the second question, of course, is mobility, which is, it's not the same people every year who are rich and who are poor. And, and we know that, that, that people who are poor in one year, odds are that a decent number of them will no longer be poor in five years or 10 years or whatever it might be. So, so, you know, what, what, and then another question, of course, is, okay, suppose it's true that inequality, the way you, the critic, is talking about it is growing. 
why is that a problem? Right. Right. What's what's the problem there? Uh, and and is it you know, I, I have this piece with Vince Geloso uh, where we talk about sort of good kinds or at least benign increases in inequality versus problematic increases in inequality. And we can talk some about that, too. But 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 part of the problem sometimes is that the way we measure inequality uh, it, it is such that that we get increases in measured inequality that don't really seem to be inequality. Just as one example, two public school teachers who let's say they make fifty thousand dollars a year each, so the household income of a hundred thousand, then they get divorced. Right now, you got two households of fifty thousand. Measured inequality has increased, right? But but is that a bad thing? And 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 even if we think it's bad what would we do? What's the, is there a policy remedy for, I mean, the usual sorts of things that the Bernie Sanders of the world talk about is not going to solve that problem. Right. So, so when we, we have to be really, uh, when I do talks on this, on inequality stuff, I say, we need to complexify it. We, we've got to recognize that, that there's a lot of things going on when we talk about inequality. Right. And, and just to add to that, I think I find that when I talk to people that are throwing out the, the objections that we were just sort of answering there in our chat, um, you know, when, when you talk to the more well-meaning people that are coming at this honestly, when you really kind of dig into what they're saying, often what they're talking about is, is sort of something we were saying at the beginning of our conversation, which is they are very concerned with undue privilege or people that have power over right. other people. Um, and so I find that's kind of a good thing that when you talk to people that yes. might say, oh, you know, the rich are getting rich, the poor are getting poor, and you start poking into it, they often have, quite frankly, actually a, a good classical liberal undertone to that, actually. They're actually more upset about undeserved or uh, that's right unjust increases in inequality, which I think is a good thing. People should be concerned about that. Absolutely. And 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 if we want to, you know, we, we can then talk about rigs, games, and things like that and say, you know, we want, yes, what we agree on is we want, we want the playing field to be fair. Uh, and there's some evidence. There's a nice piece that was in nature. I think it was or science. One of the, that was a sort of experimental thing that, that the result of which was it showed that people don't get upset about unequal results if they perceive the process was fair. Right. So, so I think that that is absolutely a way for us as classical liberals to talk to, to the modern left and, and, and poke and just the way you're talking about Alex and say, if what you're, but what's bothering you is really this sort of unearned privilege and 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 inequality that comes from some people having privileges that others don't. Yes, good. That's right. That's unfair, and that's the bad kind of inequality. And let's let's talk about that. Um, and let's talk about how to can we get rid of those privileges. I also think we can you know talk about the ways in which regulation and intervention in markets tends to well. Uh, cause greater inequality. This is Vince and I talked about this too. Uh, and, and to sort of recognize that, that those are, you know, rent, rent seeking is one way to generate inequality. So how do we deal with that? How do we, how do we try to wall off, uh, uh, the you know, political intervention that way. Awesome. And I actually going to bring up something later that's going to tie that back in. But but for now, I'd actually like to to shift gears into something else. Uh, and you alluded to this before. So now I'm, it's the thing I parked a bit. So let's unpark it. Yeah. Now. So back back in 2011, you wrote about economist uh, Tyler Cohen's book, The Great Stagnation. In that book, he argued that the low hanging fruit of innovation and progress had been grabbed already by most humankind and innovation is bound to slow down. So let, let me first like to add 
ask you if you'd like to add anything to my, my quick summary there to make sure I'm not misrepresenting anything. And, and second, how you feel your critiques still uh, hold up today? Did you reaffirm everything you talked about at the time? And what was that? I, I think I think that is a correct reading of Tyler's position in 2011. I'm not sure what his position is now. Right. Uh, right. And and I, you know, it I, that book was much misunderstood. I think Tyler's book, uh, uh, in some ways, uh, the title was provocative, right? And so now, you know, uh, uh, there, uh, I love to hashtag things. There is no great stagnation, right? Because when we see, we see innovation and so on. And I still think, I'm, I, I, you know, uh, sometimes I, th I think, and maybe this is where you're, you're planning the head, but I think too often we think of innovation as these big sort of giant things, right? Uh, exactly, where's yeah. my flying car? Right. Right. Where's my flying car? Oh, no, there's no flying car. Well, so, but in fact, right, the real innovations are often on the margin. Yeah, we don't have flying cars, but once again, I'm old enough to remember what cars were like in the 70s. Right. They're a lot yeah. better and safer now, right? And I get comfortable seats. I got a heater, you know, heated seat in my car. I get a million channels of Sirius XM. I get, you know, I get all I'm in a safety and cars don't break down and my tires last for 70,000 miles. I mean, they're just so much better. Right. Right. And, and we don't, we, we, it's easy for us to overlook that. Right. And, and we carry around the knowledge of the universe in our pockets. Right. But we don't, you know, it's, it's, it's just a phone. Right. And well, no, not really. And so, so I think those, those sorts of things, those improvements that, that there's a cumulative small improvements over time, we don't, we don't quite see. And so we're, we continue to, to, you know, to do those things. Uh, maybe the great, you know, maybe the, the big low hanging fruit stuff has been, has, has gone, but you know, I think the one thing I'd say now that I wouldn't have said in 2011, uh, is I have a vested interest in learning lots about medical innovation these days. And uh, there's huge stuff happening with CAR T therapy and, and all this kind of stuff. And, and medicine is going to be, and precision medicine, where we know, we know the genetic makeup of the person and their particular version of a disease. And we can, we can prescribe uh, a particular treatment for them uh, based on their, based on big data about what people like them historically have succeeded with. And so this is going to, this is already beginning to revolutionize cancer treatment, but it's going to revolutionize medicine in general. Those are huge. That's huge Absolutely. stuff. And, and, and so there's, there's still plenty to find. There's, there's the innovations are still out there for us to find. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, you know, we got, look, we got electricity, we got the car. I mean, this, those sort of big, the, we, we, we figured out antibiotics, right? So, those are those are big, but I think some of the other medical things are at least as big as antibiotics and 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 you know vaccinations and so on. We're we're it's going to be you know we're headed for Star Trek. Yeah, and and a lot of the stuff that we're seeing right now in terms of progress too is like there's crazy stuff happening. Just software, for instance. There's there's a great uh, there's one of my favorite YouTube videos online. It's like an hour and a half with Steve Jobs and Bill Gates on the same stage, and they were interviewed by at a conference. And um, this was in 2007. And uh, the 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 host who's a smart guy. I'm not being flippant about a uh, tech journalist Walt Walt Mossberg actually and uh, and he had um and he had this thing he was like look a lot of people are saying again this is 2007 first year the iPhone was just released he said Steve Bill a lot of people are saying that yeah this is great we're improving stuff but you know at the end of the day we're still going back to our computer we have a mouse we have a desktop 
we have a screen. There's really no paradigm shift, you know, and he keeps pushing this point. And, and Bill and Steve each had their own answer. And we could post a link in the episode. Most people go see this. And then Walt posts the question again. He's like, yes, but like you're saying, uh, Bill, you can do this with software. You can do that with software. But, you know, we're still at that same paradigm. Like, can we and then and then Bill and Steve kind of look at each other and, and Bill went, you know, I, I think you're really underestimating the degree of small innovation. He's like, if we sent you away uh, to 90, for, uh, you know, from 1995 to even 2007, you'd be like, holy shit you know what i mean like what happened just in there in software so that's that has a lot to do with what we're saying today i think that's right and 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 i think you know wireless and the so-called internet of things right yeah exactly huge i mean i've been laughing at my wife because she bought one of these little transmitters that goes on her reading glasses and so when she misplaces them right she can call her glasses and find and they'll beep and she finds out where they are right right okay it's you know we laugh and it's but that's kind of cool, right? I mean, that's it's it's those that's kind of stuff has happened in ways that, you know. Uh, I mean, I think there was this vision of people would have internet built into their refrigerators, right? And when their when their stuff when their supply of stuff would be low, it would automatically you know send a message to Kroger to order more food or something. And we haven't seen quite that, but it's getting but there. I can get on my phone and I can order my groceries and it shows up at my door two hours later, right? So. You know, yeah, back to that freedom and feedback, though, right? We're obviously right, heading the right. direction, not that uh, fiction writers, although, you know, bless them, like that, that they're, they're interesting people. And they had in the 80s, if you watch Back to the Future 2, there's a lot of ideas of what yes. the future would look like. But with that feedback and that uh, freedom process, we're heading towards what people actually want. I mean, the fact that I can sit at work, like refrigerating things hasn't radically changed, but the fact I can sit at work and see what temp my refrigerator's out, how fast the, the fan is spinning and, and what's going on, that's pretty amazing. I can change, I can change my thermostat from bed. That's my favorite thing. exactly yeah <laughs> right. right no that's that's great and which since we're mentioned movies right the the most prescient movie of course about what the future would look like was demolition man right we're, right. we're like living demolition man right now <laughs> not in all the good ways either so so uh if folks haven't seen demolition man you should it's great and and it's in many ways uh, uh that's the world the world of 2020 has uh become demolition man just a couple more things actually our time's winding down a little bit here but here here's an interesting thing i wouldn't say but there's a case made out there and and i want to uh i want to have your thoughts on it so a lot of people say uh, politicians some lawyers big companies even they actually make the argument that in in a way that the market actually doesn't help progress that is to say that you know uh, they need for instance patents or a restrictive regime for them to innovate right uh, apple uh, is, it does a lot of actually good things if you look at their corporate track record and their social responsibility but tim cook will get on a stage when he's challenged by journalists and say you know look our, our job is not to be the developer for the world we have a right to protect our intellectual property and you know we're not going to spend any money unless we can have a patent on and if anyone has seen an apple patent what they're patenting is very interesting sometimes uh including the way what happens when you tilt a tablet but nevertheless there's that argument out there they, they don't say it in these words but in fact what they're saying is the market's not helping us innovate when you hear that kind of thing what are your thoughts on that well yeah so ip stuff is is uh is true is you know an, an old one for liberals to deal with uh I, I don't know a ton about the literature, so I'm going to tread carefully, right? It's certainly the case that patents are problematic to the degree that they provide this kind of monopoly privileges we were criticizing earlier in our, our conversation. And so you, you, you know, if you have a patent, you're able to shut out competition. You're able to re- reap some monopoly profits, and 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 we've seen this in pharmaceuticals, right? That 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 can become a real the IP stuff becomes a real problem. That was part of the problem with the insulin thing and and, and all of this. Uh, 
the claim that without patents, people wouldn't innovate, I am skeptical of. There are still plenty of benefits to being the first mover and having the new idea. And even if other people step in and imitate it and, and copy it, really Apple, Apple doesn't have enough of a name that people aren't so confident in, in Apple specific products that if people started, if there were no patent protection and people started making, you know, uh, generic iPhones for lack of a better term, that people wouldn't want the Apple one originally. And, and I kind of want to say to, to, to people, you know, okay, but so be more clever then, right? If you don't have that monopoly protection, what are the ways you, you can, you know, you can, you can invest so that your product is distinct from those who are likely to, to imitate it. So, so I'm skeptical. And from what I know of the empirical literature, and again, I'm not, this is not my area. Uh, it, it just isn't the case that you need to have patent protection to encourage innovation. Uh, innovation where, where patent protection doesn't exist, we still get plenty of innovation and even other places in the economy where you can't patent, when you think about things like even, you know, in, in creative stuff, uh, we get plenty of innovation without patents. Right. Yeah. And, and even and I'll, I'll just move us away from patents then if we don't want to get too much into that. But even like th this argument from entrenched players sort of generalizes, right? Like a GM would have been in Congress in the 1970s and say, well, you know, the society's not going to get the cars it needs unless we got this nice prohibitive tariff against the Japanese. Stuff. Well, right. That's, and yeah. and uh, yeah. I've always liked the, the I, obviously the issues complicated. And there's a lot to discuss, but I've always liked that uh, flippant uh, Milton Friedman on Phil Donahue answer. Look, if the uh, Japanese want to give us better, low co lower cost cars, let them. Right. Nope, exactly. And, and it's, uh, and, and, and you can follow up with, and that, you know, means wheels are going to stop wasting resources, producing that stuff and use it to produce the things we value. Even we value more and we'll have both good cheap cars and this other stuff that we we can now afford to produce. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, one more thing here before we wind down. So, and we we're talking a bit about it at the break. So, so the double thank you idea, you really, you wanted me to, to, to chat a bit about that. So what's on your mind there? Yeah, I just probably it's, yeah, it's a good place to end, I think, too, actually. So, so one of the little things that, that we take for granted about how we interact in the marketplace is the fact that when we buy something, uh, both us, the, we, you know, as the buyer and the seller, say thank you. It happens all the time, right? We go, yeah. to, the, we, we go to the cashier and, and we hand over our credit card or cash or whatever. And, and they say, thank you. And you say, Oh no, thank you. Right. Or we go, I might, I used to, the, you know, the deli counter at the grocery store, they give you your pound of Turkey and you say, say thanks. And they say, Oh no, thank you. Yeah. Right? And that, that double thank you is, is such a beautiful symbol of the mutual benefit of exchange and about how human beings in market economies and liberal societies interact with each other in a billion peaceful, mutually beneficial ways every single day. If you sort of think about how many times that mutual thank you gets invoked in an average day in, in North America, right? It's, it's going to be a lot, right? And that's, that's in a, I, we, we don't realize that in human history, that's actually kind of amazing. You know, most of human history was, was not thank you, thank you, was over the head, right? Or, or other forms of, you know, coercion, violence, and, and so on. And, and we see in other societies that don't, you know, where, where markets are weaker and, 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 and don't work, where, where uh, people are scheming and, and so on. And so the, this is, in a way, uh, the, the market analog of the democracy and peaceful transition to power thing we were talking about, right? Which is uh, 
liberalism, democracy, markets, uh, enables us to interact peacefully with each other in, in all these ways, the do commerce theory, you know, thesis and all that. And, and I think that, that it's watching for the double thank you and recognizing it when it happens uh, is a way, just a little way to remind ourselves every day, uh, one, what the, you know, one indicator of progress that we are civilized cooperative people and uh and and two that that we live in a world in a nice world uh and that and that strangers are nice to us and i think that's the real other piece of that right that that the markets uh create the possibility of of turning strangers into honorary friends or honorary kin and that Double thank you is a good example of that. So, so we have the the uh, democracy for the peaceful transition of power, and we have the market for the peaceful uh, transfer of goods and services. Yes, Tra transfer. I would just say transfer and production of goods. There, there of exactly. Goods. Yes, but yes, absolutely. So, so Steve, our time is pretty much wound down here. Uh, we've talked about a lot. Uh, let's try and bring the conversation full circle and put a finer point on our exploration of the question. As you know, in each episode, we want to make sure that the guest has the last word. So, let me officially ask you. What do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on what drives progress? If someone was to be left with one or two or, or a few thoughts that you want them to pull from this conversation, if anything, what are those? I think it's where we started. I think it's the freedom and feedback points. I think, uh, I think when we think about human progress, uh, uh, we, we need to recognize that the institutions of the sort of liberal market economy uh, are, the, are the fountainhead of of progress, uh, that, that we need both the freedom to innovate without permission, uh, to try new things, to experiments in living as John Stuart Mill called them to, to sort of do that stuff. And, and we need to, to recognize that it's not just okay. It's morally good that we engage in that activity. And then we need to make sure that we have, uh, market institutions that, that, uh, provide the feedback that provide prices, profits, losses that enable us to know uh, how, how, how do we make these things? Do we make the right things? How might we change it, right? Uh, without that feedback, we're, we're, we could be coming up with all kinds of ideas, but we don't know which ones work. And so we need the freedom to innovate and then we need the, the signals of the marketplace to help us uh, know what to do and provide us the incentive to do more of the good stuff. I think that's a great place to leave it. Uh, Steve Horowitz, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task. My pleasure, Alex. Thanks for having me. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. 